Hello, Dr. Larry Stowell from Pace Turf. Welcome to ATC Office Hours. Hi, Micah. How things going? Going very good. I've been getting quite a few questions about the turf grass growth potential, and I can answer them, but then I wonder sometimes about the origins of the turf grass growth potential, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could join me in office hours and we could have a discussion about how you came up with this idea that people all over the world make great use of for so many things now. Yeah. All right. Well, it's kind of, it's interesting. And of course, you know, we've discussed this also just even a few minutes ago that this is not the, the idea is not super unusual, um, but making it workable for people to uh, be more accessible, I think is what we did with growth potential because people have known how, turfs respond to temperature for a long time. Uh, but let me let me describe how I ended up getting involved uh, trying to figure out why certain grasses grow better at certain times of the year. And this this slide with the high low desert is where oh that works. Let, let me let me show your um, slide, oh, Larry. Sure. Okay. So I'm gonna bring up a presentation that you have and because some people will listen to this later as a podcast um ah, okay. well, please uh okay. so describe uh in words what you're showing here which uh the people okay. will be able to watch this later um in the recorded version also and sure by the way if anybody's uh if anybody has questions uh we should be able to see them in the chat here so um go ahead and write and say hello or ask some questions and we'll try to answer those as as we can all right, yeah. So what I'm showing here is the high-low desert of California, Palm Springs uh, area. And they overseed their warm season grasses in the fall every year. And then that has to transition into the warm, the cool season grasses. Then it transitions back to warm season during the summer. And it's uh, always been a uh, struggle uh, in that area to uh, make the best opportunities on how to get that done. And there's a quite a few, there's a lot of courses out there, hundreds of courses out there, and they don't all overseed at exactly the same time, uh, mainly because people have different events at different times. So there's a staggered uh, performance or as overseeding time in those areas. And this photo here is of the Springs Country Club that illustrates wall-to-wall uh, -wall overseeding and how beautiful these courses look in the winter. I mean, just dark green, uh, rye grasses are fantastic, uh, but to get them to that stage and, and fast enough is always a challenge. Now, in this uh, photograph, this is a Greg Norman course at uh, PGA West, and what this illustrates is a uh, December image of the course where there's a driving range that has the target greens that have been overseeded, and the rest is almost white. And then the rest of the fairways, uh, just the target uh, fairways, not the roughs, are overseeded, and everything is dark green and beautiful looking, except that non-overseeded portion of the driving range. This next photo is from June, which what it's showing is that uh, the cool season grasses are fading away. The warm season grasses are starting to get established. It's a very splotchy look. That driving range that was per almost perfectly white before is now starting to turn green. And then by August, the course looks great again. I mean, the, the warm season fairways are uh, lush and green. The driving range is now completely green. 
and this cycle begins. They start over again, and then you have to get it back into December to where uh, really they want to have these facilities uh, in as good a condition as possible by, uh, by Thanksgiving. So everybody wants to get there at the same time, but they can't do it because sometimes it's warm and the, and the overseed hits the, hits the ground when the Bermuda grass starts growing again, even though they are using turf on and a lot of products to burn that uh, Bermuda down, down it's sometimes is a, a problem. Mm -hmm. we, we looked at, uh, sort of so, started out looking at where these are, how cool and warm season grasses grow. And this is a, a, a graph that's going to look a lot like you'll see our growth potential graphs from DePaulo and Beard in the uh, this agronomy uh, monograph. Man, it was published a long time ago, too. There's going to be a new version pretty soon. Back in 92. Yep, there's a, I think there's a 2014. Right. Um, I, I think there's another one on the shelf. But anyway, this, this takes you back. And you look at these graphs and you kind of go, okay, we should be able to model that. And that's, they look to me like a standard normal distribution or a bell-shaped curve uh, that many of you have heard about in, in school. So we could take a little bit of uh, time and, and just uh, actually by trial and error a bit, uh, trying to pin down what we wanted to use for the mean, which would be the uh, optimum growth temperature, you know, for, for cool and warm season grasses. And then looking at a variation the variance decides determines how well that spread out. And Micah wrote something about this in his blog just recently. And uh, this is what we started with. And we used this for many years. Uh, Micah provided a modification because he felt that there really wasn't a, a, a point at when warm season grasses start to turn down in the Larry, temperature. Larry, there there is, but it's not a temperature that you really hit <laughs> on the planet Earth. And right. so we get some, uh, well, I agree. We get some 125 degree days out here. So there's some places maybe, but it's not, it's insignificant. So I agree that this is an easy uh, way to look at it. And I think it, it works out pretty well. Although I'm not 100% sure that all of the graphs I'll show have implemented uh, this change. So this gives us an idea for any temperature, what we think the growth of the plant might be uh, relative to its maximum potential. That's why I call it growth potential. And this is the equation to, to if you wanted to calculate it yourself, this you can find on many handouts that we have out there. So there's really no reason for uh, you to memorize this or anything, but this is just there for, you, for your knowledge. Okay, this to remind you, now when we take this type of data, we can move from location to location, because this is, this is about the simple model as you can get. It's just average air temperature and a standard deviation. So now we can go to any location throughout the year and compare how uh, turf grasses might grow. So we're still looking at a pretty uh, basic model. And what this illustrates, if we come over here around, uh, uh, there's two graphs showing for people on the podcast. One warm season graph that peaks in July, and then the cool season graphs that have two peaks, one in around November and the other around uh, March. So the, the graphs cross over uh, in around October in the fall, that's when there's the maximum amount of competition between cool season and warm season grasses. And any weather modifications that favor either cool or warm season grasses will influence the success of the overseed going into the fall. So it's, this is going to be dictated by uh, weather conditions at that time. Larry, don't can I, I'm going to mm -hmm. pause you sure. for a second. And just, you, you're explaining how this works and 
and I think I have the question, is this, like, just, you were trying to solve the problem, right? I mean, like, I'm just like, where do you get this idea? Because nobody, right. nobody had tried to express this before, and then all of a sudden you introduce this, and I'm, I'm just wondering, 25 years ago or, or so, when you were working on this, was it like you were dealing with overseeding challenges? Right. This was uh, uh, used as a communication tool to support the superintendents in the, uh, in the desert areas uh, during years when environmental conditions, it's usually in the fall, were, were inappropriate for overseeding on the early side. So what happened... Uh, if you if you overseeded before the warm season grasses started to shut down, you would end up with a very thin overseed, and we were uh, providing explanations uh, to our clients in that area to help them explain to golfers uh, why the environment was not suitable for overseeding. Same sort of thing happened in the transition. If you couldn't get the turf back by mid June, then it's, uh, it's people would start complaining. Also, they're still some people are playing golf out in the desert, you know, at 110 degrees, at least in the mornings. So this was a this was all designed to begin with to uh, support superintendents in transition environments that were having problems with their uh, with their overseeds, and then also. So, so really, one more, just one more thing, one more yeah. thing, and then also the transition out. We needed to have a, about uh, 1,300. Well, we'll show that in a minute. You needed to have enough warm season growth before you applied a transition accelerator like Revolver, otherwise you'd end up with sort of dirt for uh, three or four weeks. So it's a triggering uh, that transition removal program in the spring was also critical. Cool, I, I just think it's, it's, uh, it's something that people use for so many things now. And I think it's interesting how something that, that you came up with to look at that specific uh, competition, basically the the, not even for the entire year, but really just at the time where those lines cross, where the cool season grass and the warm season grass have similar growth potentials. You you designed it, or or you you had the idea to make this calculation for those particular seasons. Um, that was the well, it, origin, it, right? Yeah, well, it just it just so happened that if you can model, roughly model the growth of uh, the species, you can do a bunch of stuff, which I really hadn't. You expanded our uh, use of it when we started talking about nutrient management and, uh, and I, growth yeah. potential. This was mainly, I don't think, mainly. <laughs> I don't think, I, I think when I was in grad school, we would have talked about this, but I'm sure you had the idea uh to say that as the grass grows more, it uses more nutrients. Uh, I'm pretty sure you had that idea. They said, well, maybe we can tie nitrogen into this thing. And it's sort of like, oh, okay. And, yeah, that, and, and the way you do that is you get, if you get maximum growth, there's a ton of literature out there that, that suggests that for cool season grasses, more than a pound of N per thousand isn't going to get you much uh, or anything above that. And then in some cases you can, that sort of levels out at two pounds on, warm season grasses, but it's a little iffy there if that if that's actually that much required. Uh, so you can use the proportional numbers from growth potential to just get a rough idea going through the year. And it does not work very well uh, on like a daily basis. 
this is good for planning, but things like clipping volume are the ones that are going to tell you how to really do a better job managing nitrogen. And Soldat uh, and his crew are are working on that. And the model is it, it's a really good like monthly planning model. Uh, and gives you some rough ideas during the weeks of the year, but uh, it's not it's not great for for detail work because there's so many um, factors involved in why a turf is performing well: sunlight, water, traffic, all those other things are involved. This is just looking at the potential for growth. This isn't looking at what you're going to expect because all those other factors are involved in that. Yeah, but it's it's such a cool way to isolate the potential effect of temperature and express that in a way that can be used for a lot of different things. So well, turf grass types, uh, recommendations, whether to overseed or not overseed in some locations are all, uh, all part of it. Cool. All right. Well, uh, we have Grant from New Zealand and Paul from Ireland and Valerio from Italy who have <laughs> all joined us from different time zones. So hello, everybody. Uh, if anybody has any questions, um, we should see questions from those watching on YouTube uh, and uh, leaving any questions in the chat. I don't know if we see anything from people watching this on Twitter. Uh, the questions from Facebook should show up too. So if anybody has questions or comments or wants to say hello from another time zone, please do so. And that should show up in the chat. Uh, all right, Jason, hello one of the coolest models in turfgrass management. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining Thank us. Um, and uh, Larry, go ahead and keep keep showing us this. And uh, that All right. it's Just break in whenever anybody has any questions. This is, now there's uh, two major ways you can represent growth potential. That's as a proportion from zero to one or as a percentage. I've been used, I use percentage a lot. Micah prefers uh, proportions. So just divide this by a hundred if you wanna uh, bring that into terms that Micah prefers better. But this is just to look at, uh, give you an example of transition uh, in the spring over a number of years. I don't know why I don't have the years on here. This is one, two, three, four, five, six years. And it ranged from uh, the end of March till the beginning of May when the Bermuda grass reached the level uh, where you could uh, comfortably use a transition accelerator uh, like Revolver, some of any of those uh, transition accelerators to get good uh, response out of the out of the Bermuda. Because you know, if you if you blew out the cool season back here in March, you might have you know eight weeks before you got up to the point we got eighty percent uh, recovery of the Bermuda. So that was one of the practical sides of uh, trying to use these models. So you can get an idea is, can I, can I get my transition revolve, my transition accelerator out there now, or do I need to wait? And, uh, this is, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's, it's good. You can look at what's happened in past years and try say, and then you can say that on average, you'll reach a certain threshold by such and such date on average. And you can even put some bounds on that and say it's gonna we expect it to fall within these dates and and work on right. timing that way yeah right yeah you can you can really uh bend it around quite a bit it's pretty easy this is a look from september through uh sort of the end of october for the transition going in to the cool season grasses and uh you, you can see there's quite a range in and accumulated uh growth potential and I'm, I'm not sure what the exact number is for um cool season grasses when it's dropped but you can tell that if you if you the earlier you put it on 
depending on the year, the more trouble you're going to have. Where in 2003, this this was just a bad year. And you can see you got what happened with this uh, two, 1998 year. You see how it shot up just like crazy. It probably got cold. So in this mm -hmm. case, if you had not uh, put your seed down early, you're going to probably see quite a bit of uh, funky-looking Bermuda sticking up uh, as it's going dormant. But there's just a, a multitude of ways of looking at it. This is looking at sort of the same uh, thing with the cool season. And you can see going into the year that uh, coming out, this is going from January uh, through through June. When these uh, curves start to inflect, that's when the warm, the cool season grass is no longer in its optimal growing period. And you see that starts to happen uh, back in May some years. And in 2001, it just didn't really do well. That was just a cooler year. Is more favorable for cool season grasses, more difficult to transition back to the Bermuda base. And another way you can look at these things, which we, we did, was we took the difference between cool season minus the warm season, and then you just accumulate those numbers. And as, it, as the cool season continues to dominate, and this is a graph going up, uh, continuing to accumulate the uh, cool season growth potential, you hit a point where the temperatures begin to favor the warm season grasses and that curve starts to descend down. And that's when uh, you'll yep. start to see the transition occur. And, and in some cases, go ahead. Yeah, this is, so this is uh, the difference between the cool and warm season growth potential. So Larry's showing this one is cool minus warm. So when that, when that is going up, uh, I think. That's cool season dominating. Yeah. And then, and then it reaches an inflection point and the line suddenly changes direction. And that's kind of a trigger for when the other species is going to do better. Yeah. That's a crossover point for that, uh, that year. Yeah. I think, I think that might be warm minus cool, Larry. Nope. It's cool minus warm. You see, this is uh this is March. Cool season still growing, 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 growing. Oh, and I'm, then this is, uh, yeah. I have terrible eyes. I thought it was August. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I see that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's March. Yeah, and then that's that just uh, gives us the ability to compare. And we know areas of the country, like in the in the low desert, Palm Springs, this type of a combination of growth potential, where you have uh, rapid growth of cool season grasses in the fall and the spring, and rapid season growth of uh, warm season grasses in the summer is suitable for an overseeding environment. That allows us to look at other areas, such as uh, Orlando, Florida, where it's not as clear um, how you would manage that. We know uh, that uh, overseeding is not gonna be something that'll be used down there, but certainly the warm season grasses are gonna have some performance problems in the winter. So that's kind of a tough, tough one. Uh, you know, Manila, Philippines, this is like Micah's region it's just dominated all of the time by warm season grasses and we have we have gary joining us from the philippines magandangumaga gary okay. yeah and then we've got uh, uh places like dublin ireland which i mean it's silly to even put the warm season grass on here but you see that their cool season grasses don't get even close to the optimums that we see in other locations that's why maybe brown top is more popular, you know, things that will grow uh, better in lower temperatures. And these, you know, you could, you could imagine that the, these, that, that mean invariance, if you really wanted to dial it in, you would adjust it to your location, maybe based on clipping volume, you know, after some 
recording some data that uh, would support that. But you can dial it in a little bit better. That's So what do you think about changing the optimum temperature for Poa annua? I know uh, some people adjust that down to 18 degrees Celsius or uh, something like that, where for, for creeping bent grass and rye grass, uh, we typically find it works really good at about 20. Yeah, I think that's what that's what uh, that's why we left those two. The two parameters that define the function are there on the uh, the climate appraisal spreadsheets, and you can take that equation and move it to anything else. But I think Jason was one of the first ones who started making some adjustments. Jason Haynes, uh, who started making some adjustments in uh, those parameters. Yeah, and then these are the types of environments that are that are nightmarish that nobody dominates. This is two shows a graph of a cool season graph with, with two peaks in the in the uh, spring and fall and a trough in the middle of the summer. And then the warm season grasses just have a, a kind of a funky uh, lump in the middle of the summer that, that uh, overlaps barely with the uh, cool season grasses. So overseeding in that environment, and this is true, is difficult uh, You can, to maintain if you want to have warm season grasses because your water quality is bad or you have drought issues and cost of water is going up, you can be sure you're going to have troubles uh, during the fall and winter of the year. So you know that, then you can plan ahead on what you're going to do. Uh, this is something uh, uh, Micah was uh, over here. Uh, when was that? Must have been three, four years ago. Oh, and, Larry, uh, it was... Uh maybe five years, five years ago <laughs> so, yeah these are the uh, the gp avatars and that um that is still a shiny app where you can uh get that or i think uh you can download that all the pace turf members can download that right they, this is all available uh, you can uh yeah we should uh we should move that over to your shiny uh area I think the database has a little some uh, issues we might want to modify too. But yeah, this uh, is is good because this just shows you that there's quite a range of environments at at the universities that conduct research that you're depending on to make decisions in golf turf management. So you might want to focus or at least understand when you're reading the research what type of growth environment is available uh, to you to compare. With your location of course everybody likes to go to the university that's nearby we have locations that are really uh, active wisconsin rutgers uh north carolina that, that put out uh, a little bit more than some of the others that uh, you might want to just consider how their data matches up with uh, the growth potential at your location so now that, that this is one we'll just take a second on this we'll talk about uh, validation because there's lots of ways you can validate these models and one of the ways you can do it is you can look at your clipping yield your location based on the average temperature and uh, figure out if it's uh, working for you or not and how close it is and what what caveats you might need to uh, impose on the model. But this is uh, looking at uh, Beavers and Cooper. This is from 1964, whether it's a growth chamber study. And this is when we're talking about growth potential. We're talking about what is the potential for a cool season grass to go with no restrictions, has all the water, all the light, all the air movement it needs, uh, all the uh, nitrogen, everything, how fast uh, will it grow? Only altering temperature. And so what they did is they took uh, some three different daylight, day and night temperature regimes, because that's a 
more realistic way to uh, look at how a plant would grow in nature. They maintained the relative humidity between 70, 65 and 75. They gave them uh, 650 foot uh, candles of light. Do you know what that turned? Let's see, that's 908 watts per meter square. How many, what's the DLI on that? It's way over what they that's need. That's a I lot. Well, there it is, 41. 41 moles per uh, meter square. And they harvested leaves at a quarter inch above the soil surface and measured the leaf area. And from that study, this is a graph showing that, they, that there was less growth at, at an average temperature of about 54. It grew the best at 65 and less at uh, 77. So it shows a, a definite um, peak in growth at temperatures around 65 is what they use here. And if we look at the growth potential expectation based on the, the model that we, the standard uh, 68 degrees and uh, variance of 10, model, you see we get uh, different temperatures that sort of look like they're right. But if you run the regression on that, uh, we got an R square of 0.97. So uh, that's just one actual look at uh, how you can compare. But it, it doesn't take long, I think, uh, to just watching growth potential and watching what's happening out of the grass to get pretty convinced that it's, it's roughly giving you some uh, decent numbers. Yeah, Larry. Um John suggests that you make the university GP chart a NFT. A oh non, my God. Non-fungible go. <laughs> token. So that could be good. And um, yeah, th then you can come fly, f make a lot of money from that and come fly first class to come visit me in Thailand. And we'll have another live coding session to uh, come up with something new. Yeah, I think that's right. You're showing some of those charts and looking at some research to kind of prove that this is realistic. Um, Jason had a comment. Uh, he said this, uh, this was the aha moment for me. So much research about how turf grass grows was done in a much warmer climate than what I grow grass in. It was nice to validate my observations with this model. That was a comment that he just shared. And I think that's right. The, it's so cool how you can take temperature data from your site and convert that essentially into a curve that shows your growing season. And what you find is that in the textbooks, it always shows that cool season grass has this big dip in the summer because the temperatures are supra optimal for, for cool season grass growth. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe in Atlanta, the summer is so intense that it's the temperatures are too high for cool season grass growth. But if you're in Saskatchewan or, um, yeah, I mean, if you're in Edmonton or something, I don't think the temperatures are. The temperatures in midsummer would be, that would be your peak growing season. And and you wouldn't have these um, these peaks in spring and fall anymore. Your peak would be in midsummer. And growth potential, now it allows you to generate this in the northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, high elevation, low elevation, anywhere, just kind of looking at how it works for your site. So it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, it worked pretty good. Well, then that was uh, then you got. I, th I still think it was your idea uh, tying in with the the nitrogen uh, requirements. And this, you know, we just went. Well, you know, we just went back to Gustav Soldaus, you know, Kreiser and Hulahan's work. And you look at uh, nitrogen; pretty much drives the bus. You put more nitrogen on, and you're going to take out more phosphorus and potassium. It's roughly an eight to one to four n to p to k, or you know, four to one to two 
end the K2O to P2O5, you know, uh, phosphate mm -hmm. and potash. And then we know roughly the clipping concentrations, which, you know, you can, we can vary those. And then I think the, uh, the latest climate appraisal, I think, has the, the, there's a sheet that you can change these on there. So you can change these assumptions also to get a better read on what the uh, requirements are for the grass. You know, and that's just sort of, so we get that kind of proportional thing. And then this is where we married up those two ideas of growth potential and, and MLSN and nutrient requirements uh, to try to keep uh, soil levels above the MLSN, knowing that the plants are going to grow and extract nutrients from the soil, how much fertilizer you're going to have to be to apply to match it up to what you think you're going to be taking out. So it gives you an actually some kind of a logical way to plan out a year in a, in a kind of scientific way. And this is just an example. Um, this is the Talega golf course. And this is another so this way. Is the, this is the climate appraisal form that you can, you can get at the Pace Turf website and you can download the spreadsheet and you can do that for metric or for uh united states customary units uh, Look, based this calculations is really, this is really an old one it didn't even have the option to uh change the very uh, uh the variant the standard deviation but anyway this is uh this is basically how it works where it shows you the growth potential through the year it gives you an estimate of nitrogen requirement by month and it also provides you, you know, phosphorus, calcium, magnesium levels that you think uh, uh, that the model says you might possibly need. And then it, at the right side there, it shows the soil parts per million that are going to be in deficit. So like if we look at this phosphorus, it says it's going to take 25 parts per million per year, roughly, in this environment uh, to grow cool season grass. And we could, we were, uh, I just gave a presentation like this like yesterday too. But uh, this is a photograph of uh, Bermuda grass overseeded with rye grass next a collar next to a, an A4 green that's looking kind of punky. It's a kind of off color. The Bermuda grass and the rye grass uh, gets a starter fertilizer every time they overseed in the fall. So that's received uh, tons of phosphorus and potassium all through the, through the time. They withhold any phosphorus applications to the green since the green was constructed. So nothing went on that, that green. And of course, uh, after, you know, eight or nine years, you start to pull off all the phosphorus in the soil and they saw that the leaves went purple. And to, uh, to try to get an idea of what's going on, we looked at their trends in soil phosphorus, Melic 3 soil phosphorus. And it started out at 150 parts per million in, uh, in 2000, and then well, this is only five years, and by 2005, it had dropped down below the MLS guideline at 21 parts per million, and that's when we saw the, um, the, the effect. And then with a simple knockout trial where you put a, a board, I think it's a two-by-three-piece board, uh, then they applied half a pound of monoammonium phosphate, two applications, would expect it to possibly bring the soil P levels up uh, seven parts per million from where it was uh, before the application. The turf where the where the fertilizer was not applied still looks uh, unthrifty and, and purple due to the phosphorus uh, deficits. But if you compare the soil test between the treated and non-treated areas, uh, this make a note the pH is 7.5. Uh, you'll 
this is a reminder that our uh, MLSN <laughs> guidelines, there's a couple of ways of looking at phosphorus in the guidelines. The phosphorus uh, for Olson P is set at six parts per million. That's the, that's the extraction system you would use for high pH soils for phosphorus. And the melic 3 phosphorus, when the pH is uh, a normal below 7.5, is set at 21 parts per million. When we looked at the results, uh, we find that the collar samples came in at about 40 parts per million using melic 3 extraction, which is not ideal for the high pH conditions. The non-treated and the treated areas both came in a little bit above 21. They're just like right on the edge of the uh, uh, MLSN guidelines. But if we look at the Olson extraction system, uh, you know, we're, we're hoped to see a, a seven part per million increase. We didn't see it. It's uh, maybe it's in the thatch or we just didn't uh, get it down there yet. But the uh, Olson uh, P for the collar areas, which are thriving, was at uh, about 14 parts per million. We only need six and don't expect a response after that. The non-treated was down at two or three and the uh, treated came up to about four and a significantly uh, higher level of, uh, of uh, phosphorus on the, Melic on the Olsen that we couldn't pick up uh, in the Melic 3. But I mean, when you're talking about uh, differences in seven parts per million, it's not, uh, it's not sometimes not that easy. But the bottom line was that the two applications of phosphorus uh, re return the uh, turf to uh, uh, healthy conditions. So we know it's a phosphorus deficiency it happened. It only happened when we got when we dipped below the MLSN guidelines. So it's another confirmation that well, you know, those guidelines are pretty solid. And uh, phosphorus, like nitrogen, you can just put it on and, and turn the turf around uh, pretty quick. But if you're starting to get down near that 21 parts per million uh, guideline, you might have to put on more phosphorus. Some locations and some data from uh, um, Soldat and, and other researchers are showing you can really drive it down a lot lower than 21 parts per million. So with phosphorus, and this is I think the recommendation that a lot of people have been doing is like you just don't put any phosphorus on until you see a deficit. It's like like uh, nitrogen. You should run it the same way. If the turf is growing too slow, then you put a, put some phosphorus on. So you can control turf growth with uh, phosphorus the same way you control it uh, with nitrogen. That sort of idea. I think Mike. I think you probably agree with that. I'm not sure. Uh, I think that's pretty risky, and I only recommend that for advanced turf grass management because uh, you the the thing with phosphorus is the turf uh, it's it's difficult to see sometimes, especially like with warm season grass. So I get massive differences in growth, massive differences in growth from adding or not adding phosphorus. Except the leaves look normal, the plant structure looks normal. It's just not growing. Um, and I think you, at the very least, you should test the soil to find out if you're in that zone or not. And if yeah, you know that you're really low, if you know that you're really low, and then you can then you can play around with it like that. But I just I it doesn't make sense to me globally. It, I, I think it mm -hmm. might work yeah. fine for bank grass in a certain region, but globally to say, let's just um, visually assess phosphorus deficiency. It's not really the way that I recommend managing because as you and I have talked about, soil tests are so, uh, so affordable and they're so accurate that you can assess what the situation is and, and make better decisions that way, I think. Yeah. Um, 
there's a couple questions here. John asks if these ideas are being taught in turf schools around the world. This is the hurdle to wider adoption, he's, he thinks. Um, I suppose it's not not taught a lot, but uh, textbooks are, are tough to read sometimes. And uh, uh, I don't know why people don't write about things like this that are so practical and <laughs> they make sense to people and they work. Um, I, I suppose people tend to stick with traditional textbooks that don't have a lot of discussion like this. But I mean, I, I'll take a, uh, I'll take a slight divergence here. And uh, I've got my my copy of uh, Turfgrass Science and Culture by James Beard, which is kind of the classic Turfgrass textbook. So this describes this. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to stop sharing your screen, Larry, so we can uh, see our ourselves here looking uh, looking larger. And uh, in in this in this book, there's a temperature section, and it lists in in the temperature section, which is on page two hundred seventeen of my copy. Um, it says what those optimum temperature ranges are. And then if you get to the end of the temperature section, it says common sense things like uh, the, temp the optimum temperature ranges refer to shoot growth over an extended period of time. Shoot growth is actually more rapid at higher temperatures when measured for only a short period of two to three weeks. And it just goes on and on with all kinds of things that we explain again and again about growth potential, about um, how the optimum temperatures, they don't work on like an hourly basis or um, a daily basis to be exact, but they work really good when you look at it on a, over a long period of time. And it, there's statements like that in these kind of textbooks that then growth potential comes out and and explains it in a way that anybody can use. And uh, I, I would hope that that some people somewhere are teaching this. But fortunately, in the modern world, people can watch YouTube or listen to this as a podcast or something, or go to the Pace Turf or Asian Turfgrass Center website to get all kinds of reads and views. And I think the ideas then get learned that way also. So hopefully. Hopefully, some uh, people will teach this in in turf schools also. I have to apologize to Grant Saunders about uh, metric units versus U.S. units. <laughs> yeah, he asked if this is going to be rebroadcast with metric units. I think um, anybody that wants metric units can um, usually find both on the pace turf uh, discussions of this and uh, on. On the Asian Turfgrass Center website, there's uh, various things about growth potential, and it's kind of concentrated in the metric uh, focus. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a rough spot here. What? <laughs> why we're still using U.S. units? We never will. We'll never understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's in. You can make the calculations either way. It's just um, yeah. that metric is a little bit easier. But once you know the United States standard units, those work too. Um, okay. Let's see. Carl's yeah, got a question. Let me see what Carl is asking. Carl 
is asking, would you say that mindset of wanting to know the phosphorus in the soil with the soil test instead of just visually assessing changes based on the turf system? And he's asking if that's golf turf versus lawns. Um, uh, it doesn't really for me because generally we want to avoid phosphorus applications uh, on any kind of turf. We want to avoid phosphorus applications unless there's a demonstrated uh, need for that phosphorus. And I think that if you, if you have reduced growth in lawns, for example, so you could say, well, lawns are probably have enough phosphorus, so let's not test for it and let's just visually assess it. And so let's just say that we're going to skip phosphorus on lawns, but then if you don't have enough growth, you're going to have more weed pressure um, because the turf would be thinner. So I think it makes sense to test, maybe not as, not so often. I, I think uh, you can test every three years or something if you want to minimize testing. But for any kind of turf area, it makes sense to me to test to know what the phosphorus is. Yeah, I think, and, and you know, with the way regulations are going, and I have some slides on that if you want to look at them, but, you know, there's been a huge uh, increase in regulations around phosphorus. Also, the cost of phosphorus has gone up like 100%. Uh, testing for phosphorus is probably more important than most of the nutrients from a regulatory and a, and a um, cost perspective. But I tell you, one of the things that drives me crazy is out here, uh, when they overseed the courses in the desert, some of the soils that are up in the 200 part per million range and they continuously apply triple 15 uh, at overseed with the concern that they won't have a good starter fertilizer for the ryegrass because they're so so worried about that transition failure issue uh, that I think is primarily due to weather conditions that uh, they just keep uh, putting it down and there's no regulations around this part of the country especially where you're arid there's no surface water to contaminate that just doesn't happen and it hasn't gotten down into the, the uh, groundwater yet. Yeah, I, I don't know that it's it's like what Eric Eric just made a, a comment that uh, I he said what I heard from other agronomists in San Diego. So I assume he's talking about the uh, recent GCSAA conference in San Diego. He said uh, from what he heard, uh, growth potential and clipping volume is still underutilized, especially in our region, which. Uh, that's, which is kind of like, yeah, the MLSN uh, is widely used all over the world, but not everybody's doing it. So if you're, um, if you're doing uh, phosphorus application, when the soil test is at 200 parts per million, you're probably not using growth potential or clipping volume or MLSN. <laughs> um, so there's lots of opportunities to optimize turf management um, with some simple little tools that I think makes makes it easier to have control of the turf grass performance. So by having more control, you have opportunities to take advantage of good weather, take advantage of every opportunity you have to have better turf grass conditions, which is really important. And by having more, better turf grass conditions and by being more in control of the situation uh, and understanding things that you can't have control of, I think it makes turf grass management more fun. 
So not only do you get better turf grass conditions, you can have more fun doing the job. And as a side effect, uh, it tends to use the minimum amount of resources necessary in order to produce those conditions. So that's uh, something that I think you've called precision turf grass management, which you've uh, written about and talked about quite a bit over the years. Growth, it, to me, it kind of starts with growth potential and then it's branched off into so many other other things like uh you know clipping volume is a way to measure what's actually happened and growth potential is kind of a way to predict it um it's, it's pretty pretty cool well i still thought there by now there would have been a lot more sensor technology on the market um and on more automation in um, handling the data i mean there's a lot of uh, automation and getting some turf quality data but it's still not dialed into the point where it's easily usable by the turf grass manager all right which is yeah it's like things like clip vol uh measuring how much how many clippings are produced how many clippings are harvested when you cut the grass every time i talk with especially people in the u.s they always are like well can't we get a sensor for this and it turns out for various reasons that it's been a little bit tricky to get a sensor that that works as well as just measuring what the volume is. And uh, it seems like it would be pretty tricky to do, but it turns out to be simple. So, yeah. um, well, you can, yeah. I think you could still even NDVI meter on the, on a mower. I think you'd get pretty close to uh, clip vol volume if they would uh, working it out. I mean, but I, you know, it's just, there's a lot of things that, uh, that don't get adopted fast. In the turf side we're, we're a little slow we're pretty far behind ag in just about every aspect of the science you know there's not that the funding is not there so it's not surprising that if you you know there's there's not that yeah, much interest I, unfortunately the mr johnny on the spot has a comment i think the slow adoption is mostly due to you can't teach an old dog new tricks the younger generation seems to be more interested in these ideas i i uh I, I have the great pleasure of having a global audience for the types of things that I write about and the types of uh, people who pay attention to what I'm doing. It, and uh, so to me, I don't see so much underutilization because by having a global audience, there's so many people around the world from Italy to New Zealand to Australia to United States, uh, all Asia, Japan. I mean, there's a lot of people in Japan that use growth potential, but because it's in, um, it's in Japanese, most people don't, don't, uh, don't know that. I, I mean, growth potential might be really well known in Japan because I've written so many articles about it that it's quite common for people in Japan just to say GP and, uh, we kind of know what we're talking about. So it's, uh, yeah. Mr. Johnny on the spot says it's Alan, and I, I thought that that was Alan, but uh, I didn't want to call you out when you've got a different username in case you're trying to be, uh, well, inconspicuous and incognito. Yeah. Eric Johnson says that some of us are young at heart, and uh, I know Eric Eric is definitely an early adopter with some of these things, and... Uh, I appreciate that, Eric. I'm glad that you do this and give feedback about how they work and whether they're practical or not. And 
um, I, I suppose most of the things tend to be practical or we wouldn't keep using them. Giovanni from Italy says, yeah, in Italy, they very well know GP. So that's cool. Larry, you want to show something else on, on your, uh, no, I was just looking if there's anything else here to, uh, um, to talk about mostly other stuff was, um, uh, no, I think we're good. Cool. Well, we've got, um, we've got about 12 more minutes on this. We're going to, we're not going to have a long, long rambling one that goes on, uh, where we discuss <laughs> this topic for two hours. Like some of the, uh, a few of the other office hours have been Larry and I both have to do another call, uh, after, after this one's finished. But, um, while we still have a few minutes, let's talk about the origins of MLSN because that's something else that um, that kind of came out of nowhere, um, and then it now it's it's now like the ten year anniversary of MLSN, and it it's come into wide and successful use all around the world. Where did MLSN come from? Can you remember? Yeah, I think well that was a. Uh... That was us talking about it again. Um, how did we come up with it? We we decided that the the guidelines would work together. I mean, you started it with your potassium work at Cornell, and that that always intrigued me. And then we started talking about it because we had all this data laying around. Uh, I think I had about twenty thousand your... data points, and and you yeah, had that was... some. Coming yeah, I think I think what happened it the way that I remember it is we kept talking about it and I kept telling you that the conventional guidelines were recommending levels that the people were producing good turf in soils that had a lot lower nutrients than what the conventional guidelines said were necessary. So we kept testing soils and getting results uh, where the turf was good, but the soil test interpretation using the conventional guidelines would suggest that the turf needed more nutrients. And you, right. well, you were kind of using the conventional guidelines and being conservative in that way. And I kept telling you, this isn't right. This isn't right. And then I think it occurred to you, hey, we're sitting on all this data. We've got all this data of what the actual soil test results are from good turf. Let's analyze it. And again, your insight into some of the mathematics that could be applied to that data and uh, expressing it as a distribution and then throwing away the bottom part of it that that that's how i remember it yeah i think that was that was pretty much it when, when, one of the one of the keys was uh when i first started working uh with soils you know, i started off doing both the soils and the diag you know disease diagnostics uh all of the data all of the samples most of the samples were coded either uh exceptional, average, or poor uh, by either me or by the uh, person pulling the samples. So we had metadata to determine whether the samples are from good performing turf or not. So that was the, I think that was critical because we had a lot of research, you know, data in the database from, you know, gypsum trials or nitrogen trials or phosphorus trials. And we had all kinds of diagnostic samples in there. So we could throw all that stuff away, which most people, unfortunately, code uh, whether their soils are from good or poor performing areas. 
and we also we also use the poor performing uh, data to find out what's bad. So we we're pretty sure we know what's a bad problem. Like you know, sodium at 600 parts per million is bad. <laughs> that type of thing. But just taking the good samples, then uh, and you look at you plot. And, you know, if you're doing the normal uh, sort of exploratory work with data, you plot the distribution, see what the, what's the spread of the data, and it's clearly uh, not normal. Like growth of uh, turf grass over temperature, it is skewed curve that we could uh, work with. And actually, that distribution is the same one that we use for uh, the nutrient analyses on the uh, GCSAA uh, surveys, because the, all of the data that we saw from water, everything, uh, it's skewed to the right, because there's a few people that use too much. So it makes your data look wrong, because you, you're as long as you're above the MLSN guideline, you're fine. That means if you're way above it, you're you're still fine in most cases. So you can have, you know, your data set just tails off to one side. And if you don't take that into account, and you just look at the data like it's a normal distribution with a with a mean and uniformly, you know, shaped around that mean, um, you overestimate the requirements of the graph of the of the of the crop or the turf. And that's what happened with the. Uh, uh, with most of the slant and the other guidelines coming out of more out of a uh, uh, an ag environment, in which case uh, I think those are more normally distributed distributions because they're pushing the high end. We're pushing the low end. We want the low end. They're pushing the high end and sort of around a mean that gives them uh, an adequate yield for per dollar of uh, or unit of nitrogen applied. Yeah, it's so not we had really to just look at it a different way. It's not so much based on turf grass. And when you read through all the textbooks, they always admit that it's not based on turf grass. And nobody really came up with any new guidelines. People just kept saying, this is a problem. It's not based on turf grass, but it's the best we have at the moment. And it just kept on going and going and going. And you ha you realize that we had this data, we had the idea, and then we, uh, we, we did that. And it... Uh, it's amazing. Even I thought some of the MLSN guidelines were a bit too low. And now when we, when we look at it further and we do the global soil survey, it comes up with potassium's lower, calcium's lower, magnesium's lower than what's in the current MLSN. And we will continue to update these. And I think the other cool thing about MLSN is we looked at it for sand root zones where the conventional guidelines are not really based on sand root zones. They're based on agricultural soils and crops. And we, we realized that high performance turf is produced in sand root zones. And we looked at what the nutrient levels are in what nutrient levels are currently producing good turf in sand root zones. And it's, it's not quite an order of magnitude lower, but it's half or less yeah, than, than right. what the conventional yeah. guidelines are. Yeah, and they're solid. I mean, it, it was actually it was a it was a it wasn't an easy project. I mean, it took some work to to sort it all out, but it, it and it was a new it was a new way as new approach rather than trying to do a calibration study uh, or or looking at deficit studies like the phosphorus study that we looked at just earlier where you know that's the bottom line yeah, you can, if you run it into a deficit. Uh, those things are really difficult to do, and they're going to be very much dependent on the environment. You know, like, like you were saying, uh, Doug Soldat can run it down to seven parts per million phosphorus in his location, and that's fine. may not be that way everywhere. 
but when you're looking at large numbers of data points, you get more confidence the, in the result because it takes into account all those things. And we put the 10% buffer on the bottom. So yeah, it was a, it was a, that's a very delightful <laughs> study to be able to uh, yeah, pull together. It is. It's funny. I, <clears throat> I, I should, uh, what would it be called? Uh, well, I mean, we still have, I still have this email archive of our conversations from back in the winter <laughs> of 2011 and 12. Um, when we were back and forth, you were using that math wave software because yeah, I right. didn't really know how to use R at that time. So I couldn't make the calculations. You were using some uh, software called math wave to find how the, the soil test results were distributed and how we could come up with the guidelines. So you were doing the math and the theory. I was kind of doing the theory and uh, we were just back and forth about how we were working on this. And uh, there's some emails where it's like, okay, this has been a fun project. We don't, we're getting ready to release it. We don't know if anybody, we don't know if anybody is ever going to use this, but at least we have an alternative to this. And then um, that so many people started using it, getting great results. And uh, I think you, you had a presentation to a, a company in a foreign country yesterday of, about MLSN. I've done consulting projects all around, I mean, for, for um, various companies around the world using MLSN. Um, and there's lots of uh, soil test interpretation and fertilizer application made based on MLSN now. Um, it's, it's been cool. Yeah, I think it. Uh, I think it's pretty solid. Um, yeah, there's always exceptions. I mean, you know, some of the uh, data I was looking at yesterday was high. Those high aluminum, uh, low pH soils, where your decision is you got 120 parts per million phosphorus in the soil, you got a phosphorus absorption index of you know like 0.05, and the pH is 4.7. What do you do? I mean, do you raise the pH? Do you apply lime, or do you try to putting phosphorus on the first thing you do is you drop a little phosphorus to see if there's a deficiency or not which is one of yeah. the one of the yeah, problems you know because <laughs> when you get those kind of edge cases um then you have to really do some site-specific right. management but at least you're working from some kind of common sense and site-specific approach um and right. you just often can't find the answers in a in a textbook and i've i've written or i've i uh I write a monthly column for the magazine in Japan for Golf Course Seminar Magazine, and I've been doing that since 2008. So I have to come up with a new topic every every month, and it's a it's about a 1,200 word article every month. And mm. my Japanese book is 36 of those articles or so, and I've it's now up to a hundred, almost 200 articles, and it's it's a lot of writing, and I. I know that when I've summarized some of this, it's like I start the article of like, uh, what what do you do when you actually have to go grow grass? What do you have to do when you when you have to actually go gra grow grass and the textbook doesn't apply anymore? Because you can't find all the answers in a textbook. And I think growth potential, MLSN, uh, clipping volume, some of these things that we've worked on uh, that you really ha have the idea for growth potential. Uh, I credit you with the idea for MLSN. 
uh, with the technical details of how that would work, they, they give a chance for anyone in the world to apply a bit of science when they can't refer to the textbook and, but they're still applying a scientific method and a, uh, a science-based method to site-specific turf grass management. Yeah, that's a good starting point. Yeah, you can start to poke yeah, around. And boy, just uh, hope. Hopefully, people will be encouraged to 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 challenge the the data and and come up with uh, what works for their site and don't get locked in. I mean, it's keeping an open mind. I know Jason has uh, pushed some numbers around uh, to make things work better for for his site to adjust things to make make it work for you. I mean, there's yeah. Now he uses the growth thousands ratio. Of ways to do it. Yeah, so yeah. he uses the growth ratio now, which which uh, looks at clipping volume adjusted by the site-specific growth potential over mm-hmm. over time to get a seasonally optimum growth rate. And he's had great results with that. He's had great results with a number of things related to growth potential. So there's all kinds of ways to apply this. If people want to get more information, you can get it at asianturfgrass.com or at paceturf.com. I think we've talked about a wide range of subjects, but if you if you search either of those websites for growth potential or MLSN, you will turn up um, a, a wealth of reading or viewing material. All right, Larry. I thank you so much for joining me today on office hours for everybody who joined us in the live stream thank you for getting up early for joining us during your work day or for staying up late to watch and you'll be able to watch this later in various recorded forms or listen to it later in various recorded forms and larry i think there's all kinds of uh what would we say more more things related to this that we could talk about in the future so maybe Maybe you can come back and join me again another time. Man, I'm going to get you started on soil gases pretty soon and bulk density. That's next. <laughs> we've we've been having a, a discussion a discussion recently about venting and aeration and compaction in the soil and how much that is a limitation to turf grass performance or not. And I I mentioned that it's a pity that we wouldn't get a chance to talk about that. In fact, I've been so engrossed in talking about growth potential and MLSN that I didn't uh, realize that I'd forgotten that that uh, we might talk about that if we had time. Well, we didn't. So next time, <laughs> next time, yeah. That's also a very I still got to formulate topic. my I got to still formulate some my ideas a little bit more around that one anyway. Yeah, I'll I'll. I'll mention Chris Tritabaugh's blog uh, where he's he's been blogging about disturbance and I think it's really interesting because he describes the journey that he took from a young golf course superintendent or even just a golf course maintenance employee and the types of work that he enjoyed doing and the things that he thought were essential at that time to produce excellent turf and now as a uh, more experienced golf course superintendent how he's kind of changed what he thinks is essential for turf grass management it's it's quite interesting i think he's got a few more posts about that so maybe we can we can talk about that uh sometime all right 
All right, Larry. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And we will catch you next time on the next Office Hours.